And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, and this, of course, is All of the Above, a show that brings you news and analysis of all things related to education, because we are two lifelong educators who know, like you know, that education doesn't get nearly the credit and attention that it deserves. So we are here to help you unpack all that's going on in the world of education. So if you haven't already, please make sure you hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening to this, please remember to rate us and review us if you may, because those make a big difference when it comes to the algorithms and we're trying to get this show out into the hands of as many educator as, educators as possible so we do appreciate that also if you haven't followed us on twitter yet we are on twitter at aota show brand new just getting it off the ground help us by following and spreading the word thank you and jeff what's on the agenda well manuel we got a good one for folks as usual we're going to start off, of course, with our do now, looking at some fascinating headlines in education from across these United States of America. And for our main segment today, this guy, yours truly, has an assessment for us. And I will say what's kind of funny about uh, to the topic for today's assessment is that our assessment is about grading. Mm. Uh, so um, somewhere in there, there's 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 a it's levels, man, because you assess maybe, in order to figure out a grade. And, yeah, and then you grade and, and reassess. And, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, so it's going to be a good one. Uh, grades, of course, everybody knows what it's like to get grades. Good right. ones, maybe bad ones, right? Um, but grading policies and practices are quite a controversial topic in most schools, at least most schools I've been to. Folks yeah. get all, all up in the feelings uh, about their grades, you know, gotta give the zero or the zero is the enemy. Uh, so we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that today. Indeed, can't wait. All right, but up first is our do now. Alright folks, now it's time for the Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in education, particularly looking at stories that you might have missed. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today uh, we're taking attendance. We got a roll call. Roll call. We're going to see who's in the house. Yeah. Yep. Alright, let's see. First name on the roster for today's roll call. We have he, him, and his. Mm. Pronouns. These being the preferred pronouns of a transgender student who was purposely misgendered by their teacher. So Virginia French teacher Peter Vlaming filed a lawsuit saying he was wrongfully fired for refusing to use male pronouns for a transgender student. In 2018, this student at West Point High School in Virginia began identifying as male. He and his mom asked for him to be referred to with his preferred name and pronouns, those being he, him, and his. The teacher, Peter Vlaming, said he couldn't comply, citing his own religious beliefs. The teacher claims that he did use the student's preferred male name, but did not use the pronouns and tried to avoid using pronouns altogether. Well, school officials eventually suspended Peter Vlaming, saying that he was being insubordinate by 
refusing to use the male pronouns and for repeatedly ignoring the orders from his own bosses to use these preferred male pronouns. So now the teacher is suing, basically saying that his um, religious rights have been violated. Jeff, what do you think about this? Well, I think I'm really happy that we do not live in a Christian theocracy. Uh, I think that's uh, that's a wonderful, fantastic thing. And uh, look, I, I think this teacher's defense is ridiculous. I think he has no merits whatsoever. And I'm really glad that we live in a country that has at least some remaining semblance of separation of church and state. Uh, you know, in our society and hopefully in any just society, a person is entitled to their own faith and their own religious beliefs, Absolutely. right? Um, so if he wants to not be transgender, if he wants to not in his own private home recognize the pronouns of transgender people, you know, I guess he has a right to do that. Right. However, when you are a teacher, when you are an arm of the state, you do not have a right to impose your Christian beliefs on anyone else, period, end of sentence. It doesn't get much more complicated right. than that. So his refusal, repeated refusal to, uh, to respectfully to, uh, speak to this student yeah. using the proper pronouns and the proper name, of course, uh, you know, represents some form of like harassment, bullying, intimidation yeah. of this student. Sets a terrible precedent for the other kids in the class, right? Yeah. When I'm sure this student is also on some level being, you know, teased or ostracized or marginalized by some member of the student community. I mean, maybe this is a wonderfully progressive school and that's not happening, but I have to believe that that's also, right. you know, a battle this student is having to wage. And here you have this teacher who's supposed to be modeling respect for all and dignity for all students doing this. It's crazy. I have zero, uh, <laughs> you know, sense of uh, empathy for it. And I'm glad he got fired. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was, now he's being fired for being insubordinate. So that speaks to regardless of whatever his religious beliefs were. Here we had a student, that student's parent and school administrators all making the same request to this teacher, which is to please use these pronouns. And the teacher purposely didn't do that. So for anybody out there, like this teacher saying that he's been fired for his religious beliefs or that his conscience was under threat by being asked to use pronouns that he doesn't believe in religiously, it's like, it doesn't matter. You were fired for not following orders from the, your superiors. But more importantly, and the underlying issue here is this complete lack of respect and regard for your own students. So if I'm a teacher, like obviously if I have 35 students on my roster, like I'm not going to personally agree with every single belief that all 35 students have because like we are we live in a diverse society and people have different life life experiences and lived experiences but as a teacher as a representative of the government my job is to teach those students and care for those students and support them to the best of my ability and not impose my own religious beliefs on them most importantly as a teacher rule number one is do no harm like any student that walks into your room at worst, they should walk out like maybe barely having learned much at worst. But here you have a student who's walking out, not only most likely not having learned anything, but actually being in a worse mental, emotional state than he was when he walked in, which is just awful. I mean, doing harm to a kid, making a kid be in a worse position than he was when he walked in is just a completely, completely unacceptable period. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And, um, you know, I think we're seeing an escalation of these kinds of behaviors, right? So uh, so this teacher, uh, Peter Vlaming, uh, of course, is suing with the help of um, the ADF, Center for Academic Freedom. Now, the ADF, uh, which I think is the Alliance for Defending uh, Freedom, if I'm correct, uh, I might have to double check that. Fact checkers will get us on that, um, is a right-wing group with extreme views on gay and trans issues, right? Um, and uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has characterized them as one of the most influential groups informing the Trump administration's attack on LGBT rights, right? So, you know, I'm fine with people uh, who actually support religious freedom, right? Who want all different religions to be able to, you know, right. exist peacefully with others and have respect and dignity in our society. But your right to religious freedom most certainly ends at the space in which it starts infringing upon the rights of other people to not only live freely in our society, but actually even exist in the case of trans people and LGBT people more generally right so uh, you know to me this is just just reeks of some of the worst aspects of our society I'm glad I'm not sure about the timeline here but I'm glad that this teacher did face this consequence right. I think it's a hundred percent in line with our with our deepest constitutional values and um, you know I can't even imagine how one could be a teacher and uh, operate within kind of the value system of what it means yeah. to be a teacher the way you're describing and you know carry on this way towards this student so uh, good riddance and you know we'll, we'll do better next time man just think about what precedent would be set if we allowed teachers to defy a student's request and a parent's request and an administrator's request off of their own personal religious yeah. views. Imagine what our schools would look like, our public schools across the nation. We just allowed that to happen. Yeah. Like, come on, man. I mean, where, like, think think of the, the argument on, here is insane. <laughs> well, my religion tells me that, you know, that I can hit the kids. So, exactly. right. <laughs> you know, right. so, you know, uh, the Bible says yeah. spare, spare the rod, spoil the child. So I should be able to hit the kids, right? Is that, is this, like, are we really going like, down this on, road? Man. This is crazy. Like, this is crazy wrong, talk. Man. Come yeah. on. All right. All I right. feel for the student. All right, next story, Jeff. All right, next up uh, on our roll call, who's in the house? Well, it is the Fresh Start Academy. Ooh, uh, we need a fresh start after that last I know. story. Sound, yeah. Sounds benign and wonderful, doesn't it? It does. Yes, okay. Well, some people might want to question that. Mm. So a new alternative school called the Fresh Start Academy is opening in the state of Maryland. And unlike most alternative schools, which focus on uh, generally on teenagers with more extreme uh, behavioral challenges, this one is set to enroll kids as young as five years old. Okay, so this uh, this school, um, Kimberly Hill, who's the superintendent of Charles County Schools, where Fresh Start Academy is located, says that she believes the school may serve as a solution to increasingly disruptive behavior by some of the very young students in the district. Uh, Hill says the alternative school will be a small and well-staffed place with a therapeutic focus to help students learn to regulate emotions and behaviors and then eventually return and transition back to their home schools. Now, um, as you can imagine, lots of folks have very charged opinions about this school, uh, really actually on both sides of the issue, but Manuel, um, tell us what you think, man. Fresh Start Academy. Yeah. You know, so I'm a high school teacher, so when I think of alternative schools, I tend to think of alternative schools for teenagers. And, um, 
you know, a lot of those students have, have very severe behavioral issues and challenges um, that make it to where them being in a traditional high school with thousands of students and, and tons of kids in, in each class and, and all kinds of, you know, several classes a day um, is just a bit much for that student and that student might be a bit much for the classroom environment. But to think of a, a kid as young as five years old to be placed in a school like that, five years old, so early early in the pipeline, so early in their educational career. That's definitely very troubling. Now, I'm no psychologist, and I don't know necessarily what the research says about students that young uh, with behavioral issues um, and whether or not an alternative setting is better for them, but I, I, I'm leaning towards the side of the critics who are pointing out that this is setting a tone for the students so early on that they are uh, quote-unquote troubled. And um, the local, past, the county branch of the NAACP uh, Deothra Sweat, who's the president of the uh, county branch of NAACP, said that she's concerned about what she calls a bar barbaric effort to create a separate school mm -hmm. in this 27,000 uh, student school system. So a separate school that many critics say is going to undoubtedly be very segregated and house a, a tremendous amount of, of black students because in that particular um, county, just like across the nation, black students are, are overexpelled and oversuspended, and she sees this as being like a, a what she calls a barbaric attempt at creating that segregation and in this separate housing for these students. Um, I, I'm also concerned about that. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? So I think I, I agree. Um, you know, again, neither of us are, uh, you know, deep experts on early childhood uh, development right. and that sort of thing, right? So maybe there is some clinical case to be made that this could be a good idea. Uh, I'm highly skeptical of that. Um, but I, I will say where, where I wrestle with this and where I, at least I understand why they might be trying to make this decision um, is that when, when you read the article and you talk about the, the types of behaviors that they're seeing from some of their students, like this is wild off the hook kind of stuff, right? Like kids who are uh, throwing furniture at other people, um, who have injured staff members or other students, right? So, uh, you know, at least they're talking about things that are actually dangerous behaviors, right? And not just like a kid who's, you know, on the floor crying yeah. or screaming or something, right? Uh, so when we're talking about dangerous behaviors, something does need to be done. So I get the impetus for, you know, we need some kind of solution. And it sounds like the district is saying they're seeing an increase in these kinds of behaviors. So I understand where they're coming from. But here's my thing. In every other aspect of society, where we take a certain group of people who are generally not wealthy and elite in some way, yeah. and we segregate them off to the side, and it's for a reason that has to do with them having some kind of maladaptive behavior, right. right? Those places are pretty terrible, whether they are prisons or juvenile hall or uh, special self-contained special ed classrooms, right? And that's not to disparage all the great special education teachers out there, but I think it's fair to say by the outcomes we see nationwide, these are not places that produce the same kind of good outcomes that the, the, the general, uh, you know, society produces, right? So I think I would really need to see some strong evidence of, uh, of how this is going to be different before I could really get on board, right? Because we do have places in other situations where we segregate folks, right? Where like 
you know, if you get hit by a bus, <laughs> they put you in the intensive care unit, right? And they like sew you back together and you get all yeah, the best doctors, right? I mean, yeah. yes, this is very technical medical terms, very folks. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, in, in certain senses in our society, when, when people have the most acute needs, right. we separate them into a place where they, in a hospital, in the intensive care unit within that hospital right. to get the best care. Right. And that gives you the best chance of recovering and then resuming your normal life, hopefully someday. Right. So I guess I remain hopeful that that could exist in our field. I've just frankly, rarely, rarely seen it. And the idea of us doing this with five year olds, just it, it makes me very, very nervous and skeptical. Yeah. Well, this story was picked up by the Washington Post, and we'll link to that article on, um, on our website, AOTAshow.com. But in the Washington Post article, um, they speak to a, a, school, a professor at the University of North Carolina School of Law, um, Barbara Fetters, about this. And she's um, studied alternative schools. And she said that a lot of this is, she, she's also skeptical. Uh, she says one of the, the issues with children that young is some of them haven't had the benefit of having pre-K, for example. Um, and she says that that a child who starts without the benefits of pre-K, uh, which helps with adjustment, a child who starts without that uh, might show some behavior challenges that perhaps a, a teacher or administrator sees as like flags that maybe this student needs an alternative setting when in reality they just haven't fully adapted and transitioned yet. Um, but also she points out that research on alternative schools shows problems nationally. She says, quote, they do not improve academic outcomes, they contribute to student disengagement, and they fuel segregation by race and disability status, um, just nationally across age groups. So um, that's what the critics of this school definitely are pointing towards, this idea that, you know, this is going to be uh, racially imbalanced and going to set students up to not have positive experiences with school and not identify as um, students who think school could be a positive place for them and where they belong and, and all that. So for all these reasons, I'm definitely super skeptical as well. Um, definitely willing to, to hear anybody out that's working at Fresh Start Academy or with Fresh Start Academy and uh, let us know what we might be missing because right now this sounds like an idea that's uh, fraught with uh, risk. Yeah, yeah. And I, so... You know, I also think, and I just want to be clear that I'm a person who definitely empathizes with the kind of other part of the picture, right? Mm -hmm. When we have children who have really disruptive behaviors in place, the rest of the kids also have a right to an education, right. right? So the solution is not just like, okay, we'll just mainstream everyone and like, and it'll just get better because yeah. mainstreaming works, the literature says so. Like th there are not, uh, you know, just utopian scenarios in which this tends to just get better on its own, right? Yeah. Like what this scenario, uh, having really young students with really problematic, dangerous behaviors, I think it's flagging for us is the need to really have a more public health societal intervention around young students who are, uh, you know, frankly dealing with really hard home life situations, right? Right? Because um, we tend not to see these sorts of behaviors absent some like very serious disability in places where folks have enough money to, you know, not be struggling all the time or not be worried about hunger and homelessness right. and these sorts of things, right? So. Um, I get that it's complicated, but just putting all the kids in the other school sounds to me like baby prison, and I, I need some real evidence that it's not going to be that. Baby prison. We did do that story last episode of the six-year-old who um, was arrested. Yeah. 
Maybe there's a. I'm well, sure that officer in Florida maybe, would love to uh, be part of this thing. Up, drove her up to Maryland to go. I'm to saying though, Academy. man. All right, so now time for our third story of today's do now. Next up on our roll call, we have Dyna Study. Dyna Study. That sounds like some kind of like. That sounds like something out of Jurassic, Jurassic. Park. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> to be frank. <laughs> like someone's pulling in, you know, DNA out of an insect and making something they shouldn't. Uh, I'm saying, um, if they didn't learn the first time, maybe yeah. four or five movies in, <laughs> you would know better. In any case, um, Dynastudy actually is a uh, curriculum company who is about to make uh, some pretty good money. Mm. Um, $9.2 million, which was awarded. Yeah, 9.2. That might be enough to clone a dinosaur. Um, awarded to the company um, by a federal jury, which found that Houston Independent School District violated copyright and um, to a very large extent, Yeah, actually. All right, mm -hmm. so a federal jury awarded the small Texas curriculum company, Dynastudy, $9.2 million after finding dozens of Houston Independent School District employees repeatedly violated federal copyright laws by photocopying study guides created by the company. In 2013, the principal of Westside High School suggested making copies of a colorful study guide, and an English teacher actually pointed out that actually on the guide it says, um, do not make copies, or mm. something to that effect. And um, they proceeded to make copies anyways, and these copies spread throughout the district, and some ended up online and spread throughout the nation. Now, the guides that were originally copied cost the school about $2,000, and Dynastudy sued for this infringement of their copyright, and jurors sided with the company, validating allegations that district staffers cropped out the company's logo, hid copyright violation warnings, and widely distributed and manipulated study guides to colleagues throughout the district. And again, some of that ended up online and went throughout the nation. So Houston Independent School District administrators said that all employees now participate in online training about copyright laws and administrators participate in in-person training as well. Jeff, what are your thoughts about this? Oh man, well, I, I have a bunch of thoughts and I want to be careful in what I'm going to say because okay. I think the behavior that took place uh, down in Houston with this particular case is problematic right yeah. like you spend two thousand dollars on the curriculum and then you distribute tens of thousands or maybe millions of dollars yeah. worth of it like that's that's wrong and there should be some consequence so right. sounds like they got what was coming to them on that front on the other hand the fact that now staff in schools in houston are going to have to sit through some mandated pd about copyright just irks me. Yeah. Uh, the fact that principals <laughs> and administrators who have no time whatsoever have to sit through some PD about copyright irks me even more. Um, and frankly, this story is interesting and intriguing on its own, but I think the larger truth of the matter is the, that many of the large curriculum companies have kind of bullied education, uh, have bullied the, the field of education and teachers and district staff into propping up their copyright, uh, you know, rights over the good interests of 
the adults and the kids in the system that we're actually yeah. serving, right? So we have all these like, you know, um, highly secure testing documents where like nobody can see like what kinds of items are gonna be on the exam. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like yeah. even, even on the LSAT for law school, you can go to Barnes and Noble and get a book that has a whole bunch of items that are just right. like the kinds of things you're gonna see on the LSAT. But on the third grade, you know, ELA exam, we can't see items on the test. Like get out of here. This is ridiculous to me so yeah Houston you messed up <laughs> you shouldn't have done what you did and the larger story here is not that uh, educators are ruining the profits of curriculum companies these folks are getting paid PAID mm. paid across the country the testing industrial complex right. is real and their copyrights are doing just fine so maybe Dynastudy uh, you know, needed to get a little uh, well, retribution here, but like, I don't know, uh, that this is not how things play yeah. out on a larger scale. Well, yeah, Dynastudy certainly isn't scholastic or discover education or anything like that. Dynastudy is, a, um, from what, um, um, what we read online, is a two-person operation, so a very small, small operation that... 4.5 each, man. <laughs> not bad. Not yeah, they're yeah. they're not in bad shape now. We need but, somebody uh, to infringe on our copyright. I'm saying though. So we could sue. I'm saying though. 4.5. Houston Independent folks. School District, feel yeah. free to upload this and crop out the all of the above, and uh, we'll get back at you yeah. in time. But no, Dynastudy, I think represents sort of the the minority in terms of um, curriculum. Um, and when we think about like large curriculum that gets sold and millions of dollars coming in and, and it being uh, across the nation. And I, as a classroom teacher, like probably, I venture to say, all classroom teachers have copied stuff that should not have been copied, especially in my earlier days where I was really struggling for content. There was one particular set of curriculum, I'm not gonna, not gonna say the name, but it was like very expensive curriculum and having the binder was like everything and several student teachers, I was a student teacher at the time, got our hands on a copy and made copies and proceeded to use that to survive the first year or two of teaching. And um, that was a company that certainly wasn't missing our, our money. But in this case, sounds like Dynastudy being a much smaller co company and the employees in this case, not just copying it for their own students, but also posting it online and allowing others to see it and others to copy and starting this chain reaction. I could see why a juror um, in this case would see that as being just like too much, like enough is enough. Definitely you could, you know, Google uh, what copyright law says for educational purposes. There's a lot of fair use out there. There's a lot of stuff that we could do for educational purposes as long as we're not going above and beyond our classroom or trying to um, rely on it too much, but, but, this was a case where these study guides, 36 different study guides eventually um, spread across 28 Texas school districts, as well as districts in Indiana, New Jersey, North Carolina. So um, Dynastudy had to do something. I mean, that's 36 study guides that I'm sure they carefully crafted and were reliant upon in terms of their business plans and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm you with sound too. <laughs> I, I just feel like I, I, it's an interesting story and it's kind of like, um, I mean, they use post-it notes. To it's kind of, it's kind of like if there was a story about like a bully that like got bullied one time on their way home from school. I mean, and, and that was the story when the reality is like this industry bullies the people the industry of every does. state in this country by just 
taking so much of our revenue because you know they published mm -hmm. version one of the curriculum then the next year you know there's version yeah. two or or even if the curriculum stays the same there's the workbooks and, and they're consumable so you got to buy new workbooks right or they change the test in some way so you got to buy new stuff to prepare for the test and i'm not saying yeah. these people are evil but i am saying that i would argue that mm -hmm. curriculum for schools is actually something much more like pharmaceuticals than something like a pair of Reeboks from the store, right? And so the fact that they can extort such large amounts of money, uh, I find in general to be problematic, right? Like yeah. students have a right to learn they and we need curriculum in order for that right to learn to take place. So, you know, I don't feel bad for these curriculum companies, man. I just don't. And I respect the law and we should uphold do the law. Do and I do not feel I'm bad sure for these already been flagged. <laughs> for these comments so um, I, I mean I hear you and again as a teacher especially when it comes to multimedia especially when it comes to videos and video clips um, you know a lot of that stuff gets used without without permission but in this case I mean these teachers like they purposely cropped out logos and like if you're gonna go through all that I mean that's just I mean that's, yeah, no, I mean, they, that's they a bridge up, too right? far man up. yeah no I'm not I, but in an ideal I'm world we wouldn't be short of materials to support teachers in educating our youth like in the ideal world you wouldn't have to scramble for resources right. and do this sort of stuff like when I got that binder and felt like wow this is just everything like it shouldn't have I shouldn't have been in that mode of survival there should have been so many materials for me to choose from and to use that you know it shouldn't have even been a question so ideally we need to work towards a place where educators have anything and everything they need to do their best and not have to go to the copy machine with some post-its to cover up logos and warnings and all that so yeah yep. we'll end it at that how about we'll that? that agree respect the law people yeah definitely don't even though even books. though these companies don't deserve our sympathy that but respect the law all right <laughs> all right folks next up will be a main segment about grading one of the most taboo topics in the teaching profession i think stay tuned like clockwork each and every year schools give out report cards progress reports and transcripts full of grades to nearly every one of the 57 million students attending America's K-12 public schools. And grades are important. Parents spend countless hours supporting their children to improve their grades. Employers and colleges consider grades and GPA so heavily that many students see grades as a make or break indicator for their life outside of school. Heck, even car insurance companies consider grades when determining rates for teen drivers. But despite how much experience we all have with grades and how much influence they yield over our lives, grades are perhaps one of the more controversial and incoherent aspects of what schools do. I'm sure we all can relate to the sometimes maddening range of grading practices our teachers had when we were in school. In one class, you had to work your butt off just to squeak by. And in another class, you could practically land an A for just showing up. The fact of the matter is, grading practices in American schools are all over the place. There is massive variance in how teachers grade, even among colleagues in the same school or department. And with this comes an equally wide array of learning experiences for students and huge problems with fairness, accuracy, and consistency. If I were to ask you, what is the purpose of grades? Most people would probably say something like, to tell us how we're doing in class. 
And as simple as it sounds, that's not far off from the right answer. In general, we think of the purpose of grades as being to communicate to everyone involved, students, families, and educators, how a student has performed in a class relative to the standards and learning outcomes for that course. In reality though, teachers calculate grades in such a wide range of ways. The grades often tell us more about a student's behavior, attendance, and simple completion of tasks rather than how much they actually know and can do. So let's get a quick survey of the landscape. There are basically three general types of grading practices, weighted averages, mastery or standards-based grading, and then what we'll call arbitrary for lack of a better term. In a weighted averages grading system, teachers give tasks to students that fall into a category of work. So for example, in a given class, tests and quizzes may be worth 35% of the grade. Homework may be worth another 30%. Participation, 25, and projects may be worth 10%. Most secondary school teachers grade this way today. And many of the popular online platforms where parents can log in and see the teacher's gradebook and their kids' performance on every assignment reflect this general practice. Now, in a mastery or standards-based grading system, instead of reporting out how students do on each discrete assignment, students' performance is reported out based on the extent to which they've shown mastery of key standards or skills that the class covers. This is usually done with a rubric using a numeric scale, like one means the student has not yet mastered the skill, or a three or four means they've shown full mastery. This type of grading system also usually comes with a philosophy that says students should have multiple opportunities to demonstrate mastery of skills over time, not just one shot. And the last grading practice I mentioned, arbitrary grading, thankfully is no longer as widely practiced as it was, at least in K-12 schools. Colleges, well, that may be a different story. Many of us who went to school before the late 90s, when electronic gradebooks began to spread more widely, remember teachers who we swore were just making up grades for us. Well, we were right, at least to a good measure. For a long time, teachers' grades would be informed at least as much by their subjective impressions of a student than any solid evidence of what they had learned. This practice, for obvious reasons, is dripping with problems. While teacher judgment about grades can sometimes be invaluable, the rampant subjectivity and bias that informs a truly arbitrary grading practice is fundamentally unfair. And in a day and age when there are so many good tools available to help with grading, it's frankly just unacceptable. So with all this in mind, we're going to unpack the merits of different grading practices and the practicalities for their use today. How should grading work? What's fair? What's logistically practical to implement? And what does this all mean for the students in America's schools? Well, Jeff, as always, you did an excellent job laying a foundation for us to have a uh, in-depth conversation about something that 
every educator can connect with in some kind of way, which is the, the very taboo, in my, in my opinion, topic of grading. So teachers, you know, a lot, of, a lot of teachers get protective over what they do in their classroom and their practice. But one of the things that I think teachers are most protective over is like their grade book. Mm. Like, you know, going in to observe another teacher is, is one thing, but asking to kind of see the teacher's grade book and how they kind of do things, I think that's, that's something that's just like, uh, just doesn't really happen mm. because of all of the complexities that you presented when you talked about um, the different ways that, that people could go about grading and the, the true factual reality that there is no real clear understanding across our profession about what a grade is really truly supposed to represent and what the best way is to determine what that grade should be. So just for you, I dug through my records, dug 16 years deep <laughs> and found and here dusting off a physical gray book. Oh, yes, man. gray books used to be physical. They used to actually be on paper and <laughs> my first year teaching, I I tried to 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 keep one and um it's it's fraught with madness. <laughs> it is fraught with madness. Folks, let's just pause for a minute. This is literally a notebook yes. that is a printed spreadsheet, Indeed. right? It's Indeed. like looking at Excel and printing it out 250 times and binding it together. So many numbers. So this many is colors. we grew up in the dark ages, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. I don't even know what half of this even means anymore or what I was doing, but I was trying. I was trying as a first-year teacher yeah. to keep some kind of record of how my students were doing in order for me to determine what their end grade should be, yeah. which I guess is really the, the beginning of, of, of the problem here, which is that question of what should the grade be? Like, what should it actually represent? And I think yeah. anybody working in a classroom knows that grades are very often a reflection, not so much of, of what the student knows academically, but their performance in terms of behavior and habits and responsibility across a semester. So the student with the highest grade in your class, let's say you're a physics teacher, the student with the highest grade in your physics class might not be the strongest master of physics in that room, but might be the student that was most consistent with showing up each day and turning in all the work and this and that and whatever. And that is where sort of the the trouble begins in terms of what an A actually means and represents and what a B or a C actually means and represents. Yeah. So of those three uh, types of grading that you presented, I'm, I'm still old school. Like I don't do it in a physical grade book anymore. I don't even know if they sell these anymore. I'm sure they sell them somewhere. Um, but you know, it's all electronic now, but it's still pretty much weighted averages. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And so, you know, they're, um, in more recent years in our mm -hmm. profession, uh, I would say mastery-based grading, standards-based grading has really grown in popularity it has, yeah. uh, because there are many, at least on like a philosophical level, there are many reasons to think that it's, it is superior uh, in the fact that it is more principled about distinguishing and articulating what mm -hmm. do students know and can do, right? 
Um, so let's put a pin in that for a moment and just okay. and just come back. Because I tend to think that, yes, that is true. And Master of Grace grading is really, really hard to do well. Right. Um, most people don't do it well that I see. And that creates confusion and disarray and distrust from students yeah. and families, which means we'd be better off sticking with a weighted averages system and just making it a good weighted averages system right. in a lot of cases, right? I don't, I, I think master-based grading is great, mm -hmm. but it really is, is like black belt work. Right. Um, whereas, you know, um, whereas weighted averages grading uh, can be kind of like, we can do this well amongst everyone if we put our mind to it, right? right. Um, so. So I would say the, the weighted averages, the, the challenges with the weighted averages system are very much what you're, what you're naming, right? So riddled with like subjectivity mm. and subjectivity that hides behind the veneer of objectivity, right? So, um, you know, tasks and assignments that get graded that are really about like, did you just copy down some stuff from the board and hand it in? Yeah. <laughs> right? Or did you actually show that you learned something about the French Revolution or, right. you know, molecules and chemical reactions, right? Um, and there's all kinds of examples of that case where exactly what you said, the, the students who are getting the best grades are students who are really compliant, who are really quiet, who are really, you know, sort of like obedient, mean. don't push back on the teacher, yeah. don't say, hey, I'm bored. And, you know, they're just like, do all the work and get it done. And in some cases, that is telling students who um, aren't actually able to demonstrate the, the skills and the dispositions they need to be successful, that they're ready. And then when they face a more rigorous, you know, standardized assessment or college coursework, they struggle. Right. Yeah. Um, and I see that all the time, especially in, uh, you know, students that are serving, um, you know, large, low income populations. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's easier to pull off. It's way easier to communicate with kids and families about because right. most parents, that's what they experience in school. Yeah. Like, OK, you're missing this assignment. It's worth 10 points. If you do that assignment and, yeah. you know, you get eight points. Now you have. A yeah. passing grade yeah, or an now. 80 or whatever, right? I'll assign something and a student will, you know, if I have it listed in the grade book, but I haven't actually graded it yet, like they're on their app, like sliding the different amount of points that they might possibly get and what impact would that have yeah. on their grade? Like, okay, if I get an 8 out of 10, I'll have this. And they know that before I do. Like, they're just, yeah. it's right there. Yeah. And in a perfect world, an 8 out of 10 on that assignment would represent that they know, let's say, eight, they've mastered 80% of the skills or whatever right. that that assignment is supposed to teach. But far too often, it's yeah. like, I just did the worksheet and yeah. someone checked it off. And yeah. so I got a passing score on this worksheet or 100% on this yeah. worksheet, right? So... Um, yeah we, yeah, we we got some some stuff to work on in our grading. Yeah, and, and my struggle as a, a I guess veteran teacher is that you know um, I I don't remember ever really even being taught how to keep or maintain a grade book. And as far yeah. as professional development around grading, um, I've had very little of it, and most of it ended with like just a what the hell are we doing type of feeling at the end as everyone walked away. So like if you ever want to experience like true chaos, like throw an essay in front of like four different teachers and have four different teachers assess that essay and have a discussion about it afterwards. And, you know, it's just like everybody's on a different page. Totally. Despite totally. how clear, you know, content standards and, and, and uh, uh, 
common core standards and any standard that you want to point to, to despite how but clear they didn't use is. the oxford comma and if you don't use the oxford comma there's no exactly. way you can be successful in college so they failed exactly exactly and they got it in late i had a student who is retaking a class because the final project for that class the student didn't print it out mm. they had it done digitally and we are uh, moving towards a uh, all digital school uh, but they didn't print it out for that particular teacher so that particular teacher didn't accept it and that impacted the grade and end of the day that student is retaking a class off of something as irrelevant arbitrary. and yeah. arbitrary as printing versus not printing let alone what does this standard actually mean in practice but this student here based on where the, and it's just it, it can get so complicated yeah so fast and i think that's one reason why teachers are pretty much just like don't talk about it yeah we just well so interesting you you bring that up because I, I think everything you just said there's uh you know certainly true from all like literally every school i've ever worked with right. <laughs> ever all across the united states um but um uh, something you just mentioned at the end there about um you know why people don't talk so much about grading i think there's a little more to that story many teachers contracts actually almost forbid the talking about grading oh, really? right yeah so teachers and this definitely varies from district to district right. so i, I don't want to be overly general but in general teachers are given huge latitude to determine what a student's grade is so there might be like guideposts placed on things like yeah. um you know uh this is this is the numerical value of a failing grade or this is yeah. like this kind of scale the district operates on or right. you know state yeah, ed code in some cases even like sets those guideposts but within those i mean that's that's like almost nothing right because right. within those everything that you just described is happening right yeah. um and so like in in the district where i spend most of my time working now um there the contractually speaking uh we are we have set ourselves up to institutionalize the chaos and dysfunction <laughs> of our current grading system because teachers are allowed to essentially do almost whatever they want hmm. right which is bananas yeah. right and even gets in the way of things like okay as a history department we're all trying to teach the same like we have a curriculum we're trying right. to teach we're trying to get kids to get from you know ninth grade at this level to 12th grade at this level and to you know read and write in sophisticated ways about right. history right so we should probably have like a common way of grading students on essays and grading students overall would make sense you have wildly different policies in people right across the hallway yeah. from one another right um, in schools all across the country and some of that is because we have no tradition of norming ourselves in these in these ways because uh, it hasn't been an expectation or it's been forbidden from happening by by contracts in some cases yeah, that's wild. And then, you know, at certain grade levels, I think it becomes even more of a, a, a just chaotic situation in terms of, for example, I teach a lot of seniors and my course is one that you need in order to graduate. So, you know, there might be a student who's been missing in action for a long time in a semester for various reasons. And certain teachers who have that student might be willing to cut that student certain breaks to where it ends up being like, my class that's the one that decides whether or not that student graduates so then although i should be obviously as a professional fully focused on um you know what that student was able to demonstrate in terms of their academic um, knowledge and skills gained during the semester 
I can't help but think about life outcomes. Like, okay, if I hold this student, if I'm the one who issues this grade for this student and that student gets held back, that student isn't graduating, um, isn't crossing the stage with their peers, with their family in the stands, this and that, whatever. Maybe they go off to summer school and then I think, well, in summer school, will they be learning any more or less than what was going on in my class? And then just like, what if they don't? work out in summer school or what if summer school ends up being like not just think of all the the possible outcomes and of course you know statistically students who don't graduate have you know higher risk factors or high, higher chance of all kinds of negative things and, and just all that weight and it's just like well damn and that's obviously not for every single class every single grade level but there are certainly teachers in certain predicaments where no matter how clear or how well reasoned the grading practice or policy might be for that teacher's class or that teacher's school still it, you can't help but bring in yeah. some of that emotional. For sure, for sure. So you're, that's absolutely uh, correct. And I'll even layer on top of that, uh, you know, what it means to grade in a context where a student comes into your class maybe many years behind in some of their that's core right. skills, right? Like reading level fourth or fifth grade and they're coming into a 12th grade class, right. right? And maybe they make a lot of progress in your class, but maybe they wind up at the end of the year reading, let's say they make lots of progress mm -hmm. and they jump up to like a ninth grade reading level, yeah. right? Which is uh, difficult to do. Um, you know, they still might be compromising their ability to fully succeed on your 12th grade curriculum, yeah. right? But do you consider that a failing grade? Right. right. And so, you know, this gets into the, the sort of um, one of the fundamental debates around grading and assessment in education, generally speaking, for our audience to give you a little bit of context, which is are assessments that you're giving norm referenced, which essentially means are students being measured against everyone else who took the assessment. Right. So tests like the SAT are norm ref norm referenced assessments um, or are they criterion reference assessments where like there's a certain standard and you have to hit that standard or you or you don't pass and everyone could hit the standard or no one could hit the standard right, right. Um, and so grades function in some ways like very similarly and there's some ambiguity around like what's actually moral and ethical uh, to do with a student who's made a tremendous amount of progress who's working hard right, right. Um, but maybe uh, is not yet at standard or the student who is at standard but hardly comes and doesn't barely yeah. try, right, but can show that they can do the work, yeah. right? Um, and these kinds of things raise all kinds yeah. of like, you yeah. know, uh, but they're never going to learn that, like what life is like if we don't teach them now. And what does it mean if we just pass yeah. them through? Like folks get real upset about these things. Man, I remember my first year teaching two veteran teachers at that school site, two who, had, who were near retirement at the time. One of them who also had, well, they both had a lot of seniors in their respective uh, content areas. One of them was of the philosophy that if they haven't gotten it by now, by 12th grade year, there's nothing that my F is going to do to change that. So why bother holding them back? Just let them all pass. And this teacher didn't, wouldn't tell the students that up front, like, hey, at the end of the day, all you're going to pass. But that was that teacher's philosophy. Like, at this point, after you know, 12 years plus of education, if this student still isn't doing what they need to do to pass, me holding them isn't going to make the difference. And then there was another teacher, also near retirement, who was the exact opposite philosophy, that if I let anybody squeak through with anything but excellence, 
I am setting them up for failure because I'm enabling them to think that like yeah. the last minute stuff, the late work, the not showing up, all this stuff is going to fly in the quote unquote real world. So two completely opposite philosophies, both I think ha were very logical. Like, yes, like if all the after all these years, the student is still messing up, you're one class that's going to hold them from graduation probably isn't going to revolutionize their whole life and whole life outlook. But on the other hand, you have to really consider like, if I just let this student slide, am I setting them up to think that this is going to fly in college or the workplace or whatever? So I don't count either teacher necessarily as wrong, but I definitely, definitely learned in my first year that like, okay, nobody's got the answers out here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I would, I'm glad you shared that story. Cause that, um, that makes me feel a little better about some of the wild, crazy stuff I yeah. saw as a young teacher as well. And like, it wasn't just me. Um, so I, I do think though, that we actually do have a clearer picture of what a grade should represent. Yeah. Um, I actually think that picture is pretty clear. I think the reality of like how we implement that and what that means for students' motivations and engagement with school and all that other stuff is like that's where it gets muddy. Right. So the the real purpose of grading, I think, is as said in the in the beginning of the assessment, uh, is to communicate how a student is doing, uh, how a student is performing mm -hmm. in their class relative to the standards and skills that are expected. Uh, to be learned and demonstrated in the class. And I, I think there's a strong argument to be made that folks who say, well, the, you know, the purpose of a grade is to like teach them that they, they got to work hard or, you know, these sorts of things. That might be a well-intentioned argument, but it's both factually untrue mm -hmm. and like rife with so much bias. Like yeah. I'm going to wield my grade over you so I can teach you this moral yeah. lesson that I think you need to learn. Absolutely. Me, the person who sees you for, you know, an hour a day, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, like has this right and this power to like control yeah. your moral development in that way. A lot of arrogance behind it, I think, right? And I think it comes from a really good place. So I want to, I don't want to just bash folks, right? But um, I mean, some of them are just straight out arrogant and they just think that, like, I mean, he said that. I'm not, I, I won't necessarily disagree. We do so. love facts and all the above. Um, but yes, I, yes, uh, you know, there, I think what a grade should be is pretty clear. And, and I don't know that there's a great deal Very of disagreement good. about that. Um, but I think what you're bringing up gets maybe uh, into some of the interesting issues around mastery based grading that we should talk about. Right. Which is kind of all, this whole school of thought that's trying to really like implement the philosophy of, of that purpose of grading. They're like, what we should do is be really transparent with kids, with families, about here's what you need to know and do in order to be successful in this class. Here's the opportunities you have to demonstrate that, right, in a variety of ways. And here's the opportunities you have to get better at it over time. And then your grade is going to be drawn from those things. It's not going to be determined based on if you brought in a box of Kleenex for the class this year, or if you sit quietly and don't cause any trouble, or right. if you always say something nice to the teacher, right? Like that stuff's yeah. irrelevant. Your grade is going to be based on what you can do in the content that this class is purposed around, right? Um, so from that standpoint, mastery-based grading is fantastic and yeah. wonderful. And having gone through uh, a lot of work with uh, my former school and with a bunch of other schools around mastery-based grading. It is definitely, without a doubt, some of the very best 
instructional learning hmm. that I've ever engaged in with, with no. teachers and myself to be so thoughtful about what are we trying to get kids to learn and what counts right. <laughs> for them in terms of how they demonstrate it. it. It blows your mind to really explore these things, right? And what's fair, and like how many chances should kids get to, to show that they can do it? Um, like these are really great questions to dig into. Um, on the other hand, it's so complicated to right. implement well. And the fact of the matter is you need teachers who are willing to work really hard and, and be really principled um, in a way that frankly is, is, um, is more rare than it should be, I would yeah. say right now in our profession. And you need a whole school community that's gonna have to rally around explaining how this system works to kids and families and that it's so different than, than traditional grading, right? Like, what does it mean I got a three on this standard? Like, right. I, you know, what's my grade? <laughs> like, yeah. do I, am I passive, right? Like folks always want that. And, and you want to elevate the discussion out of that to be like, well, what have you learned? And how, how much progress have you made? <laughs> Screw but that. I got a 4.12 GPA. I need to have a 4.14 or else exactly. my life is over. Yeah, it's, it's hard to do well. It's hard to do well. Well, this actually has me thinking about a story that we did, I think, on our first or second episode, way, way back when we had a Do Now story about uh, grade inflation and... Um, if you go back to that, we'll link that under this video. It probably looks pretty rough. We've come a long way since that, that first season. Um, but the story was something around the, uh, the lines of just how much grade inflation has, has increased over just across the nation, particularly at uh, so-called really elite, high-performing uh, private schools with you know, parents hovering for that um, as close to 5.0 as possible because so-and-so needs to get into Yale and all that. So there's clearly a lot more to discuss when it comes to grades and grading and, and grading practices. So much more to unpack. So this will be um, a topic that we revisit um, in the future. But for now, definitely, what if you are a current classroom teacher or administrator, um, please drop a comment and let us know um, right now of the, the three types of grading that um, Jeff introduced in terms of the, the, the weighted averages and the mastery-based grading or just the arbitrary whatever. Um, which do you find to be most common in your in your building and um, what are your thoughts about um, the pros and cons of each or whether or not the proper appropriate move is to uh, drive the discussion towards mastery based um, grading. So definitely let us know your thoughts. Jeff, thank you for that lovely assessment. Um, I don't suppose you use one of these fiscal grade books anymore in your work, but I might have a not blank so, one somewhere so in case in case you need. <laughs> All right, folks, up next will be our class dismissed. All right, folks, now it's time for class dismissed, where we like to shout out people doing great work in the field of education. And I would like to point out something that I received in my box at school, which is this fall's issue of Teaching Tolerance magazine. I definitely want to shout out all the good folks at Teaching Tolerance for the hard work that they're doing to help make sure that all students across the U.S. are receiving not just the best curriculum, but curriculum that really truly reflects who they are and sees them and values them and values their humanity. And all the curricular resources that Teaching Tolerance is putting out to help teachers meet social justice standards and make sure that every young person in our classroom is being given the true justice that they deserve in terms of the best, um, most truthful, most loving curriculum out there. So the new issue of Teacher Tolerance Magazine um, goes into 
struggles for to provide mental health for uh, students, particularly black students. They have a, a section on teaching hard history, which I, as a history teacher, find truly, truly helpful and valuable, not just the, uh, the um, teaching hard history uh, article here, but also the, the podcast in terms of making sure that we tr be honest about America's hard history of slavery. So shout out to everybody at Teacher Tolerance. One of our former AOTA um, guests, Genevieve DeBose, actually is on the advisory board right. now of Teaching Tolerance. So shout out to Genevieve. I have a feeling you'll be seeing more of her on All the Above a coming up soon. Suspicion. Sneaking suspicion. <laughs> yes. All right, Jeff, what else we got? All right, well, we have one final uh, shout out to give today. And I will admit, it is a somewhat unorthodox shout out because mm. the person we want to recognize is not actually an educator. Although, depending on how you look at it, they are certainly teaching some valuable lessons to a certain oh, individual. Do tell, do tell. Okay, so I want to give a shout out to uh, U.S. Magistrate Judge Sally Kim. Now, many of you might be wondering, who the heck is U.S. Magistrate Judge Sally Kim and what does she have to do with schools? Well, I will tell you. Uh, you may have heard recently that Betsy DeVos has continued to break the law and violate court orders no. and not forgive the debt of students who were defrauded by these ridiculous uh, fraudulent colleges, right? Who ripped them off and left them with all these loans that they then had to, had to pay back. Well, the court had ruled that students should receive relief from that debt and that Betsy DeVos needed to take the steps as U.S. Department of Education's uh, Secretary of Education mm -hmm. uh, to provide relief for these students. Right. And she has repeatedly refused to do so. No. So this judge has threatened to, to put her in jail if she does not move to actually relieve these students' debt. So I want to give a serious shout out. I want to give a, a digital long distance hug to Sally Kim because Betsy DeVos, in addition to being the number one hater of all the above, we mm -hmm. see you giving the thumbs down on YouTube, you, Betsy. Betsy. We we know it's you. We see the hateration. Uh, she is also, frankly, and I, you know, we try to be fact-based and objective on our show, yeah. but she is just not a good person. She doesn't just not a good, good person. person yes, she's bad news. She needs to get a bad new job. News. All of us will be better off when she does. And thank you, uh, Judge Sally Kim, for hopefully putting Betsy DeVos in her pl proper place. Jeff, this is the third season of All the Above, and we've been mentioning Betsy since the beginning. Are you at all surprised that she is still there, given all the turnover at the cabinet level? I mean, you know... Gotta um, give her some kind of credit for outlasting for, all those people, for, right? For hanging on. Look, I, here's, what, here's, my, here's my real thinking. When you're put in charge of something that you actually want to destroy, and it's as big as the U.S. Department of Education, she's staying busy. She's got a lot to try to true. destroy. And, and when it's an institution like school that so many people love and need, right. she's got a lot of folks pushing back against her, too. So I'm sure she's, she's staying busy uh, slashing and burning over there in D.C. Man. Do you think we'll ever see cuffs on her? I mean, uh, any agents in the FBI want to shout out on all of the above? Because <laughs> we'll give you yeah. one. Yes, yeah. we will. Uh, so shout out to this judge. Uh, it's obviously unlikely that the Secretary of Education will actually face any jail time or be behind bars for, for this. But for a judge to even point that out as a serious possibility, I mean, that's something. It's definitely worthy of a class dismissed shout out. 
Alright folks, we've come to the end of our episode. If you haven't already, please uh, take a moment, if you don't mind, to uh, rate us and review us and make sure you've followed and subscribed. And we will see you next time.